Thank you for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in seven different locations. We hope that today's message encourages and empowers you on your spiritual journey and helps you grow deeper in your relationship with God. To learn more about Our Savior's Church and how you can get involved, you can visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Well, for the last several weeks, we've been in a series talking about legacy. We've been talking about a, a man that, that his legacy continues 7,000 years later. As a matter of fact, every one of you have been tuned in watching the events of what's going on in the Middle East. How many of you are concerned? We, we, we should be. Uh, Israel is God's timetable. And as we look at what's happening in the world, you realize that that land that they are right now in is land God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 7,000 years ago. When God said to Abraham, get up and go to a place that I will show you. I'm not going to tell you where it is. And I told you that ever since then, men have never asked for directions. And they just start going. And he stopped. And when God spoke to him, he said, this is the land I will give you. That is the land that is currently, it was called Canaan. It's now, we know it, is Israel. So this series is called Legacy. We talked about Abram's legacy, but, but what is a legacy as it relates to you and me? A legacy is a future without you still influenced by you. How many of you had grandmothers or grandfathers that loved God? Raise your hand. How many of you had grandmothers or grandfathers or mothers that brought you to church? Raise your hand. How many of you are, they're gone, they're dead, they're with Jesus, but you're in church today because of their influence. Raise your hand. That's their legacy. The wisest man that ever lived wrote a thousand years before Jesus. His name was Solomon. He was the son of David. And he said in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has set what? Eternity in the human heart. What does that mean? That means, as Psalms 90 verse 10 says, the message translation kind of puts it in a brutal way. Here's what it says. We live for 70 years or so. With luck, we might go to 80. And what do we have to show for it? Trouble, toil, trouble, teenagers, and a marker in a graveyard. Every one of us knows internally that there's more to this life than this life that we were made to live forever. So internally, every one of us want to give ourselves to something that will outlast us. Let me give you a practical example. How many of you had strict parents? How many of you have noticed their transformation now that they are grandparents? <laughs> Remember how hard it was to get a dime out of your daddy? He comes over the house, he's throwing dollar bills at grandchildren. Great-grandchildren get $100 bills. Everything in your house had to be straight, settled, picked up, put just right. Same grandparents come in, things are thrown everywhere, stuff's flowing over the sink, falling out the refrigerator, and your daddy's like, hey! And you're going, who is this man? <laughs> Why? Because when you think about what really matters, all of a sudden, all the stupid stuff that you thought mattered doesn't matter at all. You realize you have a house, so it can get messed up by your kids. 
You have a house so that your children can come and ravage through it. And when they get through, you get to pick up things after them. It's all about our legacy. We know there has to be more to this life than this life. Jesus said in John 10, 10 about this life, the thief is there to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's always his plan. Wherever you see someone stealing, killing, and destroying, it's the devil's fingerprints. But Jesus said, I came that they could have a real and eternal life. Read this with me. More and a better life than they, than they ever dreamed of. A more and a better life than they ever dreamed of. A more and a better life than they ever dreamed of. How many of you here are 25 or younger? Raise your hand. Because I want to talk to you just a moment. Across all of our campuses, you need to know this. Okay, when you're young, you actually think, you, you have plans. Like when I do this, I'd like to do that. And some of you have dreams and aspirations you're not ever sure that you could even fulfill. But let me ask you a question. What if right now you could map out your entire life and you could predict what, what house you would live in, who you would marry? No, they can't be married to somebody else. Who you would marry, you, where you would live, what you would become, what your children would be like. You know, we all have tendency to do those things. Here's what God says. If you planned it out, the best of your imaginations, the best of your plans, it doesn't even meet the beginning of God's plan for you. As a matter of fact, the Bible says it like this. God will do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond anything you can ask, think, or even imagine. Even imagine. You know, I, I share my story so often, you know, coming broken marriages, Dad married five times, mom two times, man she was married, Red was married two, seven times, gangs, drugs. And people go, well, Pastor, some of you know my story better than I do. But do you know I love sharing it? Because it's not my story. It's his story. Because where you would be without the grace of God versus where you are because of Christ living inside you is his story, not yours. You must share it. It doesn't belong to you. So this life, this, this better life than you ever dreamed of. Well, what kind of life is that? Well, there's four levels of living. I don't know if you knew that. The first one is living to survive. I, 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 if I can just get to this weekend, if I can just make it to the end of the month. Here's the second one is living just to make it. Just trying to make ends meet. Surviving, making ends meet. Here's the third one, learning to live for making more. Living for making more. I just, I, I, gotta, I gotta do more than my parents did. I gotta make more money than they did. I gotta, I gotta get more, more. Can I share something with you? The more you have, the more you have to worry about. And here's the last one, living to make an eternal difference. Living to make an eternal difference. Well, what does that mean, Pastor? Well, there's business terminology called ROI. How many of you know what ROI means? Okay, let's try one more time. Return on investment. So a lot of you know what that means. Because when you invest in something, you know, you only have three things to invest, time, talent, and treasure, that when you invest in something, you get a good return. How many of you want a good return on what you invest in? Raise your hand. 
course you do. Every one of us do. Even if you're not good at saving, if someone, you can give somebody $100 and next week it becomes $1,000, it's like, hey, I'll make it. Here it is. Why is that so significant? Because there is another ROI that's really important. It's not ROI, it's E-R-O-I. Do you know what that means? Eternal return on investment. Eternal return on investment. Remember, legacy is where my future lives on even when I'm gone. Legacy is a future that's still blessed by me even when I'm gone. John the Beloved describes it like this in 1 John chapter 2. Really clear, listen to what he says. Don't set your affections of your heart on this world or loving the things of this world. For the love of the Father and the love of the world are incompatible. For all that the world can offer us is, and now it's going to name the three things the world offers us, the gratification of the flesh, the allurement of things of this world, and obsession with importance and status. None of these things come from the Father, but are from the world and its desires are in the process of passing what? Passing away. But those who love to do the will of God, what? Is he saying that all the things of this world are bad? Who created the snow? Who created skiing? Who created fishing? Who created shooting ducks and geese? I believed he created the tigers till last night. Now I'm praying he created the saints. Uh, 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 all of these things, who created physical intimacy? Who created beauty? Who created Tony Sacheries and Tabasco? All of these things God gave us. But here's a question. If God gave us all of these things and then said, don't love them, why did he give them to us? Because he doesn't want you to love them. He wants you to enjoy them. He wants you to enjoy them. Well, well Pastor, what, what, what does he want us to love? Well, you have to understand the original language that the Bible was written in. That There's three different words for love in the Bible. The first one, you'll see it up on the screen, is called eros. It's where we get the word erotic from. It refers to physical intimacy. Aren't we grateful for that? If it wasn't for that, you wouldn't be here. Just a newsflash in case you hadn't taken biology. Here's the second one, phileo. It's where we get the city named Philadelphia. It means brotherly love. And here's the third one, agape. Say that with me, agape. That word is a love that is reserved for God and man. It is a love that God gives man that we're able to give to others. But it is only a love that's reserved for us and God. And when he gives it to us, we share it with others. We know it in this verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. That word is agape that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. What is agape, pastor? 
Well, if, if eros is physical intimacy, if it's phileo is brotherly love, agape is to unselfishly love someone even if you receive nothing back in return. That's what it means when it says, for God so loved the world. He loved us even though we may not serve him, even the years we didn't serve him, even when we haven't loved him, he still loved us. That's agape. That's the word that God gives us when it says, husbands, love your wife. Agape, your wife. Lay your life down for her the same way Christ did for us. To unselfishly choose the highest good for someone else, even at your own expense. God only wants you to agape what's eternal. God only wants you to agape and understand what will last. But can I tell you this? Everybody knows that when you get my age. Everybody knows that when you get beyond 50, you start realizing there's more of my life behind me than there is in front of me. And you remember the illustration that Pastor Joseph used so well preaching a few weeks ago when he had a long rope and he said, this whole rope is eternity and your life is this length of the rope. And what happens in our life is this length, but what we do with this length determines what happens with the rest of the length. This called eternity. Why does God not want us to love the things of this world? Because they're temporary. He wants you to enjoy them, but he only wants you to love that which is going to last. How many of you love vacation? How many of you have been on a vacation? If you haven't, you need to go on a vacation. And imagine going to Gulf Shores and, and you see somebody from the church and you go, hey man, where are you? And they say, oh, we stand at a condo right down the way. You go, well, I'm here too. What are y'all doing tonight? I said, well, we're in this rented condo. We're going to buy furniture for it. They go, what? Do you own the condo? Oh no, it's a rented condo. How long are you going to be here? A week? Well, why are you buying furniture? Because I don't like the furniture that's in there. Would that be foolish? because you're only there temporarily. God doesn't want you to set your heart on that which does not last. Not because they're bad, just because they're temporary. You see, the goal is not to live forever on earth, but it's to leave something that does. Do, do you know what's going to happen when, when you leave this world? Do you know what's going to happen when you take your last breath? Like every one of us are going to take the final exam. You, you, you know what the final exam is? Now, let me just ask, how many of you did well in school? Raise your hand. How many of you, you love final exams and you were always prepared and you had all the answers? Raise your hand. Okay. I hate you in a Jesus kind of a way. Yeah, in New Iberia, I hate you in a Jesus kind of a way. And Broussard, and Midtown, all of you, everybody, young. I, I, because I, I hated Friday. I got sick more Fridays than anybody you know. Friday was my sick day. As a matter of fact, the only reason I'm not a pastor and a doctor is Friday. If it wasn't for tests, I'd be in both. But one day, there's a test that all of us have to take and nobody gets to skip. You know, I, I, I've done some funerals lately, uh, some that are glorious and some that are heartbreaking. 
Um, I, I did a funeral that was one of the most wonderful funerals I've ever done in my life last week. And 10 days ago, I did one of the saddest funerals. It was a 17-year-old that was shot in a gang fight. And uh, someone called my son Christian in Houston and said, the only one I know that could preach that funeral is your daddy. Would your daddy do that? And I, I remember kids out smoking weed before. We had extra security. Thank God Lovey came with me. He was sitting up on the front row. When you're 6'4", 285, and you have a gun, and you're filled with the Holy Ghost, that's strong. <laughs> All of them are strong together. It's very strong. So I was very bold. <laughs> and when I was, when I was preaching, I mean, right, right before I got up to speak, uh, someone came over and said to Joseph, Joseph, uh, his brother wants to say something. He hadn't been able to say something. Could he say something? Joseph was like, looks at me. I go like, Sure, it's his brother. So he walks over. I didn't know he was in chains. Like chains. Legs. He grabs, I love my brother. But when I get through here, somebody getting shot. I'm getting... Joseph grabs him. We grab the microphone. They drag him off. And I looked at all these young men that were there. All sunglasses all of the whole thing and I looked at them and I just saw little kids and I said you know what you're not hard you're hurt you're just hurt you're hurt you're not hard you're hurt because you never had a daddy to protect you you're hurt because there was nobody advocating for you and I'm looking at this 17 year old look at this 17 year old it's now gone all of us are going to die. Huh? Let me give you the mathematical statistics. One out of every one of you are going to die. Even if you went to Ascension, you can figure that one out. Every one of us are going to die. And then we're going to take a two-question test that nobody gets to avoid. No one. And if you're here and you came to church and you think, this is, this is preacher talk. This is what priests and preachers do to scare people. I am so glad that modern technology has finally caught up with Scripture. Because if you think what I'm saying is a farce, go type in when you get home on YouTube, Harvard neurologist dies and goes to heaven. And you'll see Dr. Eben Alexander, a Harvard neurologist who died, and he will tell you what happened in heaven. And then you'll see doctor after doctor, there's three or four that died, and what happened to them. And do you know what every one of them say? Every one of them say this, my whole life flashed before my eyes in a moment. You ever had something traumatic happen to you, an accident or something, and you actually said, man, my whole life flashed before my eyes. My whole life flashed before my eyes. That's actually what happens. Listen to what Paul says happened when we die. But the answer to the question of whether we pass or fail this test is based upon three things. Question number one is, what did you do with Jesus? Question number one of the final exam is, what did you do with Jesus? 
You say, well, pastor, there's a lot of different belief systems out there. And you know, you could get caught up, trapped in anything. Listen to me. When God saw how fallen the world was and how broken it was and that Adam and Eve who placed in the garden to live forever and how broken and fallen, murder, adultery, abortion, all of the heartbreak, war, killing. When God saw all of that, God said, I'm going to do something to rescue the world and I'm going to send a message that they cannot deny is from heaven. And so he sent his son and he sent her via a virgin so everyone would know she was not like every, he was ever like everyone else that came from earth. He came from heaven. And then instead of him being born into a place like a king or a God would be born, he was born like a peasant. And then he did miracles and signs and, and, and wonders. And then so that no one would have any excuse at all to go, well, I mean, there was a lot of people born that said things about themselves. He had him conquer man's ultimate enemy, death. And he wasn't dead for an hour and he wasn't dead for three hours and he wasn't dead for two hours. He was dead for three days. So that when he rose from the dead, none of us could ever stand before him one day and go, uh, I thought it was Jesus or Buddha or Mohammed or something else. And he would say, no, I sent my son born of a virgin. I sent my son who paid the price for all of mankind's sin, past, present, and future. And I raised him from the dead after he was dead for three days. So you would know he alone was God in the flesh. The Bible says on that day, no one will have an excuse. No one. Romans 1 says creation declares the glory of God. When you're going to go, well, God, I didn't know you were there. He's going to go, did you see the sun? Did you see the ocean? Did you see the stars? Did you see the moon? Did you see a baby being born? Did you see the joy in a father's eyes when a child comes forth and cries first, a mama? And at that moment, none of us will have an excuse. What did we do with Jesus is the first question. There's one of three things we can do with Jesus. Number one, we can reject him. All this matters is this life. Hey, Pastor, that's it. We're going to party like it's 1999. By the way, the guy who wrote that song is now dead. The artist formerly known as Prince. That, he changed his name to that. He really is now the artist formerly known as Prince. Let you figure that out. You can reject him. Secondly, you can respect him. A lot of people do that. Oh, man, I, man I, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't talk bad about anybody's faith. Man, I, I respect Jesus. Anybody remember the Doobie Brothers? Anybody remember the Doobie Brothers? The term Doobie in the 70s and 80s meant marijuana cigarette. Some of you later grew up and called that a joint. And, and their name, Doobie Brothers, meant smoking dope brothers. Okay, and they had a song in the 70s that was really popular. Anybody remember it? Jesus is just all right. Jesus is just all right. Well, there, Jesus is just all right. <laughs> Jesus is just all right. <laughs> Listen to me. The question is not Jesus all right with you. The question is, are you right with him? He God, you're not. 
Here's the third thing that we can do. We can reject him, we can respect him, or we can receive him and agape him as the God above all, as the savior of mankind, as the one who paid a debt that I could not pay, the one who loved me at my worst. That is the most wonderful thing about God I know. If you could ask me, Pastor, what's the most wonderful thing about God you know? I know a lot of people. I've counseled a lot of people in this room. I could tell you things about people that would just, you'd never talk to them again. But I know the worst of me. How many of you know the stuff about you you've never told anybody? How many of you know the stuff about you you're not telling anybody? Could you tell me after church? Look, look here. L- listen carefully. I want you to know this. The most wonderful part about God is he's the only one who knows all the worst of me, and he's still the one who loves me the most. He's the only one, and he's still the one that loves me the most. But when we die, listen to what Paul says is going to happen. Romans fourteen ten. You then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will what? Give account of ourselves to God. My whole life flashed before my eyes. John the beloved goes on to tell us in Revelations 20, 11, I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. And the earth and the heavens fled before its presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, both what? Great and small, okay? Presidents and peasants, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which was called the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they'd done. Now, there's two judgment seats. One is the great white throne. That's where those who have rejected Christ or respected Christ only will stand before. But then there's those, if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior and he's lived inside of you, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When you stand before the judgment seat of God, it will be so that you will know you have no excuse for rejecting God while he sends you into eternal darkness without him. Let me just stop a moment. Because a lot of times people say this to me. How could a loving God send people to hell? Look right here. God has never sent one person to hell. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us hell was not even created for people. It was created for the devil and his angels. But when people began to follow like he did and rejecting God, they ended up at the same place. You see, God is love. God is light. And God is life. And the opposite of love is, and the opposite of light is, and the opposite of life is. So when you die, if you've rejected Christ, he will send you the only place that he is not. He will indeed answer your prayer. He will answer your prayer. But it's his will that none should perish. If he could send his son to unmistakably reach out to you, then no one has an excuse for why we reject him. But the second seat is called the Bema seat. 
That's the Greek word. It's the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul tells us about this. And this is our second question in the final exam. The first question is, what did I do with Jesus? Here's the second question. Here's the second question. What did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with what I gave you? 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of so that each of us may receive what is due for us with the things the things we've done, do what we've done with the things while in the body, whether good or bad. Jesus told us what happens in the end in Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what? What they've done. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you want to be sure you pass the final exam? How many of you know that if you haven't made the decisions now about both of those questions, that by the time you get there, it's too late? By the time you get there, it's too late. You see, wisdom, wisdom and faith is now trusting God and what he says and his promises are true before I get to the end of my life and realize life is a vapor and it does all pass. So as I close, I want to I ask you something. How many of you ever cheated in a test? Okay, do you know if you lie in church, you go straight to hell. You don't pass go, you don't collect $200, nothing. You just, yawn. You get there, you stand there, queen sings, another one bites the dust, the trap door opens, and you just fall all the way down into an eternal abyss. Okay. How many of you ever cheated on a test? Raise your hand. How many of you were so smart people cheated off of you? I hate you in Jesus' name. Hey, you know the ways you would cheat. You just like yawn like, ugh. <laughs> you'd, roll, you know, you'd drop your pencil. Hey, what's the answer number three? How many remember that? Okay, I... Trust me, nobody ever cheated off of me. I was never, I would give people my paper. They could, she would. I, I want to give you an opportunity to see someone recently who took that two-person, two-question test and passed with flying colors. Would you like me to do that? Th this will be your cheat sheet. This will be your opportunity to look from where you are, regardless of where you are right now, and be able to say, that's the way I want it to end. You say, Pastor, who, who would that be? It's a legacy of a very simple Cajun family. A little Cajun lady who got married when she was 18, she was a LeBlanc. How many of you know a LeBlanc? LeBlancs around here are like Fontenot's in St. Landry. She was a LeBlanc, married her childhood sweetheart, moved next door to her mother, had seven living children, one stillborn child, part of a twin that died at birth, and began life like we all do. And the pressures of life 
began to weigh on her husband who became addicted to alcohol and became abusive, terribly abusive. They separated. Seven children separated, getting a divorce. And someone invited her to a meeting at a church like this. And she came at the end when we asked people to be born again. She raised her hand. And like the lady who grabbed me before I walked into service, she said, Pastor, I've been coming here for two months, me and my daughter, and our whole life has been changed by God, and we're getting baptized. I just want you to know that. That's the story. Well, the other great stories. Come on, Johnny. Kyla LeBlanc, who was here earlier, last service, delivered from heroin, healed by God, got home. Daddy saw a miracle of his life. His daddy, who was addicted to alcohol, came to church, gave his life to Christ. God changed him. Living together. Every time they come together, I look up and go, Johnny, when you get married? Johnny, when you get married? He called me a couple of months ago. He said, Pastor, it's time. And look at me. When Jesus changes somebody, he doesn't just change one person. He changes everybody in the family line. Only, only Jesus does that. That's what happened to this family. That's what happened to this family. And after they were born again, both of them, they reunited and began to build their life on Christ and in the church. Going to church is not an option for them. Praying in the morning was not an option. They would stand in circles. The daddy would make them stand in a circle and all pray out loud voluntarily or involuntarily. Okay, can I tell you this? It's tragic that many parents have made coming to God's house voluntary. Listen to me. It's not your coach's job to decide what your priorities are. It's not your teacher's job to decide what your priorities are. Many of you are in the house of God today because you have a godly mother, grandmother, grandfather that left you a legacy, and it's one that you refuse to enforce on your children. Don't be surprised. You had something to come back to. What will they have if you don't give them something to come back to? And they did. They built their life around the church. Going to church was not an option. While they were just doing, raising seven children, she began a little business just on the side to support their family. Later to become the largest unfinished furniture store in the South. Now comes the legacy. Because of their obedience to Christ, they have 23 grandchildren, 21 great-grandchildren, all of her children and grandchildren are born again and have received Christ. From her children and grandchildren are four worship leaders, two missionaries, six pastors, and a wonderful Mexican son-in-law commonly known as the Mexicoon or El Macho Muchacho. King David described this type of legacy. Listen to what he said in Psalms 92, verse 12. 
The righteous will flourish like the date palm, long-lived, stable, and useful. They'll grow up like a cedar in Lebanon, majestic and stable, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God, growing in grace. They will still thrive and bear feud and prosper in their old age. They will flourish and be vital and fresh and trust and love and contentment. They are living memorials, say this with me, to declare that the Lord is upright and faithful to his promises. Upright. Let, let, me, let me show you who that woman was. It's my mother-in-law. Let me tell you a story since Michelle's not here. I fell in love with her before I fell in love with Michelle. Oh, it's true. I was 19 when I met the Bodwin family. Jesus had transformed their life. They'd come out of a traditional church and they were addicted to the church of God, to the word of God, and to making sure their children knew God. Mr. Bryan had them hold hands and pray in the morning. Those that had a prayer language, he made them pray in that. It wasn't an option. It was just a part of their life. They were imperfect. I was their pastor from the time I was 20 years old. Why anybody would let me pastor them in their marriage when I'm 20, I have no idea. But they did. I, it, it was not perfect. There were disagreements. There were arguments. There were blow-ups. But all the while, they kept their faith in God, their commitment to each other, and their commitment to build on God's Word in their family. I remember one day when I was about 15 years ago, I was at Miss Louise's house. I was there. I'd go after I dropped the children off at school and we'd have coffee and I was hugging her in the living room. Same house they lived in for 60 years next door to her mother. And I said, Miss Louise, I, I, just, well, I, sure hope, I sure hope that I die before you. Because you're, you're the mom I never had. This is the family. When I came in and I saw your family at 19, I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to get in this family, but I'm going to get in it one way or the other. And thank God, Michelle went to Bible college, blossomed, came back, and proposed, and I accepted. <laughs> and she's not here, so I could say that. I knew that when I saw her, I saw the future in her mother, and I couldn't wait. I was wrong. She was twice at what her mama was. Can I tell you what that is? It's legacy. They weren't preachers. They weren't big time people. They didn't have a big house. They didn't have money. They just had Jesus in the center of their life. Let me show you this next picture. That's Mr. Brian and Miss Louise with their youngest grandson at that time. You now know him as evangelist Had Naranza, preacher of the gospel. But it's because of that right there. That's the legacy. A future without you, still blessed by you. When I think of them, I think of this. That, that's a 300-year-old tree at the Broussard campus. 
We actually built every building we have around that tree. Around that tree, 300 years old. And I think it talks, but only children hear it. Because children climb up in that tree. We have a young lady who was here earlier, precious African-American lady who grew up at that church. She's now a lawyer in Mississippi. And she said, when I saw that tree, I started crying. She said, Pastor Jacob, you don't know how many times I climbed that tree. I believe that God's desire is for you to so build your legacy on the promises of God that one day your children and your grandchildren, put that tree back up, your children and your grandchildren sit up under the legacy of who you are, of what you are, and what you become. Can I tell you something that you got to be old to know? Growing old is only a blessing when you lived right when you were younger. It is. It is. It is. Because you get to see the seeds of your prayers. You get to see the tears that you cried. You get to see the investment that you made of what is eternal and you recognize so clearly. I know what really matters and what doesn't. I know what to love and what just to enjoy. Next week, I'm going to share with you the most exciting opportunities our church has ever had since we began 25 years ago in September. It, it, it is going to blow your mind. The opportunities are before us and the people to reach for Christ because of it. The Kylans, the Johnnies that are behind them, and the many that are the Brian and Louises, and the many that every one of your stories, just like the lady who grabbed me out there and said, my life has been radically changed. Before I ask you to pray with me, I'm going to give you one last hint for tomorrow for next Sunday. Here it is. What was Jesus' profession? Okay. Okay, I want to be sure. Getting kind of scary. Thought we had a couple of painters in there. It was Leonardo da Vinci. That wasn't Jesus. He didn't paint the Last Supper. Okay. <clears throat> what was he? But you know there's only one thing he said he built. He said, I will build my church. The carpenter only built one thing because there he knew the lost would be found. There he knew alcoholics would be set free. There he knew the broken would be restored. There he knew there would be somebody to cry with gang members, mamas, and daddies, and grandmothers. There he knew the poor would be fed. There he knew the blind would see. There he knew those that were broken, had no clue what family was about, would be educated in God's word and his promises and go from their lives being blown apart to being pillars in the house of God. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that takes eternity and brings it into the moment to give us clarity. Today across 
all of our campuses, I know that you are speaking to us about what really matters. You have put eternity in our hearts. Every one of us want to live for something that will outlast us and something that's eternal. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that every one of us would be ready because our job as pastors is to prepare every person here for that test at the end. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you the first question of that test. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, don't be surprised that I tell you, you must be born again. You say, well, pastor, I, I believe in God and, and I believe in Jesus. I've been christened, I've been baptized, I've joined the church. Isn't that good enough? That's a great start, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, you must be born again. Every person born since Adam and Eve has been born spiritually dead. Mother Teresa was born spiritually dead. Billy Graham was born spiritually dead. You and I were born spiritually dead. But the moment we're born again, we are spiritually raised from the dead and the love of God, that agape, comes and floods our life with Jesus' life. So if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I've never prayed to be born again. If Jesus said I had to be born again to see the kingdom, to enter into it, would you pray for me today? Today I want to be born again. I'm going to count to three in this last minute, and on the count of three, if that's you, if you say, Pastor, I want to be born again today. I want to begin my spiritual legacy today. I want you to raise your hand real high and put it back down. I'm going to pray for you. One, God brought you here. Two, nothing is an accident. Nothing is an accident. Even the events that brought you here today were not an accident. God has been speaking to you. He's been drawing you with his love. And now's your time to be born again. Three, if that's you, lift your hand high. All across this building. Yes, all across, hands all over this building. All over, and all of our campuses. Hands are raised all over. Last 10 seconds, anyone else? Pastor, I didn't raise my hand, but I should have. I know I need to be born again. I know God is talking to me today. Raise your hand and wave it at me. Raise your hand. I'm asking this last time. Wave it at me. Okay, I see hands all over, all across our campuses. Okay, you can put your hands down. And now we want to pray with every one of you that raised your hand to be born again. Now's your moment to begin your spiritual legacy. Let's pray out loud together with him, church. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn away from sin to be born again. Today, God is my Father, Jesus is my Savior, and I'm born again in Jesus' name. Amen.